As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, back from maternity leave and ready to resume the mantle of hosting the C.S. Lewis Podcast. I want to say a huge thank you to the inimitable Justin Briley, who has done an incredible job of looking after this show in my absence. And what an extraordinary week to return to work. On our first day back in the office together, Thursday, September the 8th, Queen Elizabeth II, Britain's longest reigning monarch, died aged 96. This episode of the podcast was due to be released on Monday the 19th of September, which is actually the state funeral of Her Majesty the Queen in Westminster Abbey. And so we thought it was important to reflect on this event. We've decided, therefore, to interrupt our normal schedule with a special one-off discussion about the Queen and C.S. Lewis. I spoke to C.S. Lewis expert and author Michael Ward, who, like Lewis himself, is based at Oxford University. Michael is a member of the Faculty of Theology and Religion at Oxford University, and he teaches online for the Master's Programme in Christian Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. Michael and I discussed Lewis's thoughts on monarchy, the Queen's coronation and the kings and queens of Narnia. He even gave us a potted history of some of the British kings and queens. For further reflection on the faith of Queen Elizabeth II and her impact nationally and globally, check out the Premier Unbelievable website where there are lots of great articles and podcasts. Visit premierunbelievable.com. For now, here's my conversation with Michael Ward. Well, hello and welcome. I am joined by Michael Ward, one of the leading experts on C.S. Lewis and author of numerous books, including Planet Narnia, which we're going to hear a little bit more about in today's podcast. Michael, I'm so pleased to finally meet you, if in fact we can call this online setup meeting. Um, But you're certainly no stranger to Premier Unbelievable or in fact the C.S. Lewis podcast because you actually appeared on the show back in November 2021 and spoke to Justin Briley about your latest book, After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of man. Um, So do go and check out that podcast if you want to hear more about Michael, including how he first encountered C.S. Lewis, his journey from Anglicanism to Catholicism, and of course his cameo acting role in a film about Lewis's life, The Most Reluctant Convert. I'll include links to that episode in the show notes because it's it's really interesting just to hear a bit more about you actually, Michael. But our focus today is C.S. Lewis and the Queen and just sort of the monarchy in general. And I'm sure you've already figured this out, Michael, but 
but Lewis, because Lewis's life spanned from 1898 to 1963, he would have actually encountered six monarchs in his lifetime. Um, however, until a few days ago, you and I had only ever experienced one, Queen Elizabeth II. So, so perhaps before we talk more specifically about Lewis's views on this issue, I wondered if you'd share just a little bit about what your own response has been to the death of the Queen, Michael. Yes, thank you, Ruth. Um, well, like many people, I was very upset when the news came through last week that she was dangerously ill and then that she had died um, because she has been a constant in my life, as in your life, all these years. You tended to think that she was sort of immovable. Mm. And it's rather like waking up and finding that Mount Everest has disappeared from the horizon. <laughs> Thing, this massive thing that's always been there at the apex, the summit of our society, is no more, uh, alas. And so it's it takes a lot of adjusting to, doesn't it? The mm-hmm. first time I, I heard anyone refer to the king, I thought, who? <laughs> still brings me up short occasionally um, when I hear Charles referred to as the king. Um, because, yeah, you can't change, well, I'm 54, you can't change 54 years of habits overnight. Mm-hmm. And of course, the people who much older than me, um, you know, as old as 70 or really 75, you have to be at least 75, don't you, really, to be able to remember the previous reign. Mm. Um, and so you can understand why it's having this, you know, seismic effect upon the nation, the Commonwealth and indeed the world in general. And do you have any particular memories of the Queen? Well, I never met her to speak to, mm. and I only saw her in person twice. Uh, once when she came to open a, a new wing or some refurbished museum in of the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, and once uh, here in Oxford, where I'm speaking to you from, um, when she came to open the refurbished Ashmolean Museum. Um, and on that occasion, I was really surprised, the, the second occasion in Oxford, because I was just driving into Oxford and suddenly I had to screech to a halt because some, <laughs> some motorcycle policeman outrider w- was holding up the traffic. And and I didn't know why. I didn't know the Queen was in Oxford. And then she drove past me and waved. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's my head of state. How nice. Brilliant. Um, and so those were the, the two occasions I came closest to encountering her. Um, my first real memory, I suppose, of the Queen uh, was was probably around about the uh, Silver Jubilee back in 1977, when I would have been nine. Mm. Um, I remember my mother telling me about the Queen, and my mother said, the Queen is a good woman. And (laughs) and we had big celebrations in my Sussex village where I grew up. I remember those vividly. Um, All the local organizations, the Rotary Club and the schools and the churches and the Women's Institute and everyone, they they made some sort of shield, some, you know, arms um, in the the form of a shield. And these these were put up on poles all around the village pond. We had a very we have a very nice village pond in Linfield in Sussex. And this was very um, bright and inspiring. And then on the Jubilee Day itself, I remember (laughs) it would never happen these days. a greasy pole was erected, <laughs> so it's stretching out over the village pond. And at the end of this pole hung a bottle of champagne. And the local youths um, were encouraged to try to walk along or try to 
pull themselves along this greasy pole and get to the end and and grab the bottle and if they did then they would win and the game would be over wow. i mean that's uh, got health and safety nightmare written all over it hasn't it no, exactly i still <laughs> remember the 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 cries of oh uh, from the crowd as these young chaps, you know, <laughs> fell awkwardly into the not very deep pond or, wow. you know, their legs went either side of the pole. <laughs> it was excruciating. You would never do that these days, but it was very good fun. And as you can tell, it's 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 lodged in my mind yeah. all these years. <laughs> and it sort of sounds like the kind of thing that C.S. Lewis would have been involved in if, if that was going on in, in his time. And obviously we can't speculate on exactly what he would have thought of the death of the Queen. Um, but but how did how did Lewis view the monarchy generally? Uh, he was quite a keen monarchist. Um, he uh, I've, I've turned up a couple of quotations um, from him about what he thought of the monarchy in general. Um, and I think uh, it might be best if I just quote these because sure. um, he's so quotable and I, I, I would just garble them if I <laughs> paraphrase them. But he, in one of his essays called Equality, um, he says, we Britons should rejoice that we've contrived to reach much legal democracy. We still need more of the economic democracy, equality, without losing our ceremonial monarchy. For there, right in the midst of our lives, is that which satisfies the craving for inequality. Because he's, 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 his point in this essay is that inequality is, is not a bad thing, um, necessarily. It can obviously reflect something bad, but it's not always bad. And um, equality, he says, is a kind of legal fiction which we impose upon our society in order to offset um, certain evils. But it's medicine, it's not food. And, he, and so he goes on and says, hence a man's reaction to monarchy is a kind of test. Monarchy can easily be debunked, but watch the faces. Mark well the accents of the debunkers. These are the men whose taproot in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, has been cut, whom no rumour of the polyphony, the dance, can reach. Men to whom pebbles laid in a row are more beautiful than an arch. Yet even if they desire mere equality, they cannot reach it. Where men are forbidden to honour a king, they honour millionaires, athletes or film stars instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. <laughs> For spiritual food, her spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served, deny it food, and it will gobble poison. In other words, he's saying basically that we, we delight in inequality. We love that some people are brilliant mm. athletes or beautiful film stars or, you know, superb scientists. Um, we, we totally accept that there's a hierarchy of, of talent and giftedness in these areas. And, and one of the good things he's arguing about monarchy is that it, it installs that uh, good inequality um, at the heart of our national life. And, and it's an inequality of, that, that cuts both ways because you know, we confer upon the monarch and the royal family all sorts of privileges and wealth uh, and dignities and titles. Um, but at the same time, we impose upon them all sorts of pressures and strains and lack of privacy and you know poor king charles at the moment he's just lost his mother and mm. he's having to do all his or most of his grieving in public um 
it must be an incredible burden, but at the same time, obviously, an incredible privilege. Um, so the net result of, of being a monarch or being a member of the royal family is probably about equal, <laughs> probably about, you know, even. Um, so we shouldn't be too um, uh, cut up as Democrats that we have this undemocratic thing at the head of our state. In a way, the fact that the king or the queen is unelected is, is quite appropriate, um, Lewis seems to be implying, because, um, I mean, who elected you and me to be voters? Yeah. <laughs> so it's an accident of birth that you and I have the power of the vote. And it's an accident of birth that the, the, the king is the king or the queen was the queen. Um, so that sort of God-given um, just, uh, well, that, that state of, of givenness, given by Godness, um, to have that enthroned, literally enthroned at the heart of our nation, is, is, tells us something about ourselves. That, you know, we didn't make ourselves, you and I. We, we just find ourselves created for various purposes and we have to make the best of it. And, and do we know if, if Lewis ever met any kings or queens of Britain? He never met any of them that he lived through the reigns of, um, as far as I'm aware. He did go to a Buckingham Palace garden party in 1956, which he didn't much like, to be honest. He, <laughs> he said he was one of 8,000 people at this wow. um, garden party. And he said... He, you couldn't even tell whether the queen was present or not. He never saw her. Um, and there was a huge, you know, you, could, you couldn't even get close to the refreshment table. There were so many people. It was like, <laughs> a, it was like a London railway terminus on a bank holiday, he said. Um, and eventually he, he left and refreshed himself with a couple of pints in the pub down the road. Um, <laughs> he said the whole experience was ghastly. Wow. Um, <laughs> so that was, I think, the nearest occasion he got to actually meeting the Queen. There is an account by his, his stepson, Douglas Gresham, of, of some member of the royal family visiting Lewis's home in Oxford, the Kilns. But um, I've never been able to work out who that member of the royal family was, and I, I doubt very much it was the Queen. Do, do we know why? Well, I presume that it was just someone who had enjoyed Lewis's writings. Um, but I don't know which writings. And I, as I say... I and, we, and we don't know which monarch. <laughs> well, I don't know which member of the royal family. Um, I, I doubt it was the Queen, but it would have been in the 1950s uh, and 60s because that was when he, he Lewis acquired his stepsons. So it wouldn't have been any of the previous monarchs. So if we rewind back a little bit, we, we know that Lewis was named on the last list of um, honours by George VI in December 1951 as a commander of the Order of the British Empire, CBE. But we also know that he declined this honour. I mean, do we know why he declined this honour? Yes, we do, because he wrote a letter to um, Winston Churchill. It was Churchill's administration mm -hmm. that offered him this CBE and that letter has survived and is published in the collected letters of C.S. Lewis. And, and Lewis says there that it's got nothing to do with him being ungrateful for the proposed honour. He's very satisfied to, to be suggested. And insofar as his own personal feelings were concerned, he, he would happily accept it. But the reason he declines it, he says, is that uh, there are always um, knaves who assert and fools who believe that all his Christian writings are covert anti-leftist 
propaganda. Right. And because Churchill's government was, you know, a conservative government, um, if, if, if he, Lewis, was shown to be accepting a gift of a conservative government, that would strengthen the hand of those who say, oh, Lewis is just, you know, in, in hock with, with the, the right wingers, which he didn't want because he was always very, very careful not to express any party political view in public. Um, so that's why he declined. Um, and I've, I've, heard, I've heard also that he was even offered a knighthood um, though I, uh, I've never found evidence of that, but he obviously oh. declined that too. And not and none of that was was clearly to do with the monarchy. So I mean, as I mentioned earlier, there there were six monarchs in Lewis's lifetime, and obviously he wouldn't have been able to witness all of them, partly because he was so young, and partly because the first one that was ever televised was Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953. But we do know that he watched that. Um, I mean, what was his reaction to that? Mm. Well, I did a little bit of research earlier today, Ruth, and I discovered that um, Lewis didn't watch it, um, ah. but his brother did. Right. <laughs> um, they they didn't have a they didn't have a, a television. Okay. And and Lewis didn't get round to seeing it on anybody else's television, but his brother Warren Lewis did, and it was from Warren that Lewis heard. Of, of the great solemnity of the occasion and of how he said, this is Lewis now in a letter to someone, he said that the Queen seemed to be almost overwhelmed with the sacramental side of the ceremony. Um, that was what really uh, impressed itself upon the viewers. Um, and he went on in this letter and said uh, that there, there was a result, as, as, as a result in the spectators, those who were watching it on television, a feeling of awe, pity, pathos, mystery. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. As if God said, in my inexorable love, I shall lay upon the dust that you are glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond your understanding. Do you see what I mean? He says to his correspondent, one has missed the whole point unless one feels that we have all been crowned and that coronation is somehow, if splendid, a tragic splendor. So that, those are quite profound words from from a man who, as far as I know, didn't even see it on television, wow. but he heard about it from his brother. And he, and he was able to sort of put himself into the, the position of, of the Queen accepting all these dangers and responsibilities, as well as the glories of uh, sovereignty. And he, and he saw in that, again, a reflection of, our, every, of everybody's situation before God. I was obviously quite struck by that to be able to say something like that without even having seen it. I mean, yeah. I, I guess, he, you know, he talks there about um, being called by God to be his vice regent, what what do you think Lewis would have made of the Queen's faith? Um, well, I don't know. Um, on that subject, he doesn't say very much, except, of course, that he's aware that she's impressed by the sacramental side of of her coronation, that she herself viewed it as a vocation. Um, I mean, the Queen became. It was only in later years, wasn't it, that the Queen became really quite clear and demonstrative in her Christmas broadcasts about her own faith. 
Um, I think she gained in confidence as the time yeah. went by. I remember particularly in the year 2000, uh, everybody was celebrating the, the new millennium and, and a lot of people just seemed to regard it as, you know, just some numerical accident that we were now entering the, the third millennium. Um, and nobody, very few people seem to be paying attention to, well, what is this 2000 years <laughs> from? And of course, it's 2000 years from the birth of Jesus Christ. And in her Christmas broadcast that year, mm. 2000, the Queen made a lot of that. And, and as a result, she got a huge mailbag of support from people saying, yes, at last, you're, you're expressing a, the, not just a historical fact, which everybody needs to be reminded of, but you're owning up publicly, very publicly and positively to your own faith. And, and she received such a warm response that I think that encouraged her to do, to do more. And, and so in the, in the years since, She's, she spoke even more. Um, I mean, never forcefully. She was. She was. She was too much of a diplomat to, you know, put it in your face, so to speak. But within the limits of her constitutional position, mm. and knowing that she was the queen of, of people of every faith and none, nonetheless, she she was able to to make it pretty clear where her own loyalties lay, without impugning anybody else's loyalties. And that I think was part of her, her skill as a, as a stateswoman, that she, she knew precisely how far she could go without offending anybody and yet remaining true to herself. One of the ways that C.S. Lewis does speak quite openly about kings and queens is obviously in the Narnia Chronicles, where kings and queens are clearly a very important feature. Why, why do you think they do play such an important role in the Chronicles of Narnia, kings and queens? Well, Lewis said somewhere that um, the, the the Christian imagination makes the uh, sorry the Christ Christianity says makes the heart and the imagination royalist because Christians conceive of God as as king. We we think of God as as the monarch, the sovereign of over all things. We talk about God's sovereignty, don't we? We talk about king of kings and lord mm. of lords and the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Um, and of course, you know, throughout most of history, kingship has been the natural way of ordering societies. Uh, modern popular democracies are, are relatively new things in the history of the world. You know, they've only come about in the last several centuries. Um, so it was natural for, for most people in most times to think of God in monarchical terms. And so when Lewis is wanting to write a series of fairy tales um, in which he's wanting to say something about God, obviously he's going to set, set his, his, his uh, stories in, in a kingdom, not in a republic. I mean, interestingly, Philip Pullman has tried to counter that with his own vision of the Republic of Heaven. Mm. Um, but it doesn't work. It's, it's true what Lewis says. It's not just Christianity that makes the heart and the imagination royalist. It's the world of fairy tale, too, that makes the heart and the imagination royalist. Because nobody has ever, until Philip Pullman, has ever written a fairy tale in which, which began, so to speak, with the words, uh, once upon a time there was a president and a first lady. <laughs> you can't get a good fairy tale out of it, but you can get excellent fairy tales out of once upon a time there was a king and a queen, mm. once upon a time there was a handsome prince. Um, 
so I think Lewis is 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 tapping into deep rooted sort of archetypes in the human imagination, um, which, as I say, tie in with with the givenness of of our situation in the world that, you know, we, we don't elect ourselves to come into this world. We don't elect ourselves as, um, as having power as voters. We just find ourselves in these positions. And, and monarchy is a, actually a, a better representation of that, that givenness than, than a modern democracy is. And do you, I mean, do you think there's any sort of sense that he might be offering commentary um, with those narratives on what he feels kings and queens should be like? Oh, yes, absolutely. And in fact, um, Alan Jacobs, the, the literary critic, the English professor in America, um, who has written on the Narnia Chronicles in the, the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis, which I edited, uh, Alan Jacobs says in his essay on Narnia that, that in his view, and I think he's, he's probably right, um, uh, if we tried to consider the seven Narnia stories as a single story, what is that story about? And then Alan Jacobs says, I contend that the best answer is that the stories are about disputed sovereignty. More than any other single thing, the story of Narnia concerns an unacknowledged but true king and the efforts of his loyalists to reclaim or protect his throne from would-be usurpers. And then he goes through all seven Narnia Chronicles, pointing out how, how this is, in fact, more or less in each of the, of the Chronicles, um, the basic shape of the story. Uh, who is the true king of Narnia? Is it the White Witch or is it Aslan? Is it King Miraz or is it Caspian? Um, and so on seven times over. And I think there's a lot in that. And, and it's because Lewis is wanting to say that, yes, Human beings have their power structures, and in Narnia, the, these are kings and queens. Um, but above them is the true king, uh, Aslan, and even Aslan acknowledges the higher authority of the emperor over the sea, you know, his father. Um, so there's a kind of kingship with even within the sort of Narnian equivalent of the trinity that Aslan is himself bound by the by the magic that the emperor wove into Narnia at the beginning. And he would not work against the emperor's magic, even though he has all kingly authority himself, which is, you know, very much like Jesus saying that he's come to do the will of his father. Um, and even though Jesus is, you know, the king of the Jews and talks about my kingdom is not of this earth, Jesus himself is referring everything always to the as it were, the higher kingship of his own heavenly father. And, and your book, Planet Narnia, was um, inspired by one of C.S. Lewis's poems about the planets. And you were particularly struck, weren't you, by what he said about the planet Jupiter. I mean, would you say just a little bit about that? Yes, I, I was reading Lewis's long poem about the planets, that is to say, the medieval seven heavens. And I was reading the lines about Jupiter. And according to medieval thought, Jupiter had these influences that it shared upon the earth, and they, they related largely to kingship. Jupiter was the king, pardon me, and um, one of his influences was to bring about winter past and guilt forgiven, as Lewis says in this poem. And that was what put me in mind of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which is all about the passing of winter and the forgiving of guilt. And also the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is... is 
above all, uh, you know, even more than the other six Narnia Chronicles concerned with kingship, because the very first description given of Aslan in that book is he's the king of the wood, he's the king of the beasts, he's, he's the true king. And, and kingship is very obviously, more obviously in that book than in the others, um, the destiny of the children, because as, as the children first go into the wardrobe, they put on the fur coats that they find there, and we're told that they looked more like royal robes than mm. coats when they put them on. And that's a, an indication of where the story is going to fi finish up when the children are, are crowned and hailed and sceptered and enthroned in the castle of Caer Paravel at the end of the tale. And, and everyone acclaims them with the cry, once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia, once a queen in Narnia, always a queen in Narnia. So kingship, a Jupiter kind of kingship, a, a jovial kingship is very much the, the tone and the flavour of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And then in the other six books, the other six planets um, provide Lewis with his, his imaginative blueprint and his, and his themes and his colour scheme, as it were. Uh, and that's what I discovered. And that's what I wrote, wrote about in my book, Planet Narnia. And it's interesting that Lewis loved Jupiter, not just as, as Jupiter had been written about in medieval poetry, but also as Jupiter was expressed musically in the planet's suite by Gustav Holst. Um, interestingly, Lewis said that he didn't much like the Jupiter movement, you know, Jupiter, <laughs> the bringer of jollity, which now gives us the, the great hymn tune, I vow to thee, my country, you know, Lewis said that that was insufficiently regal for his understanding of Jupiter because it's based on a folk tune. Um, but it's, it's highly ironic that that hymn tune, I vow to, which has now been set to the words, I vow to thee my country, has become a favorite of, of royal events. You know, mm. it, was, it was sung at the, the wedding of Prince Charles in 1981. It was sung at the funeral of, of Diana, Princess of Wales. Um, and it would be very interesting to see if it's sung on Monday at the Queen's funeral. We don't yet know what the music is going to be for that service. Um, no. But it's, it's become very much a, a sort of emblem of, of things royal in England, well, in Great Britain, hasn't it? Um, that, that tune. And it derives from Gustav Holst's own musical interpretation of the jovial, of the Jupiter spirit. Well, and, and you mentioned... Um now King Charles, it's it's quite difficult to say that, isn't it? It's certainly King Charles III. Every time someone says that, I'm like, who's King Charles III? <laughs> um, again, this this may be speculation, but do you think C.S. Lewis would have any advice for King Charles as he takes on the crown from his mother? I suppose particularly thinking about him being the um, being called by God to be his vice regent and high priest on earth, um, you know, as he said in those letters, yet feeling so inadequate. Do you think there's anything that he would sort of say to King Charles III if he if he was here today? Well, I think, yes, we can deduce certain things that Lewis might well say, uh, again, from his depiction of kingship in the Narnia Chronicles, because uh, repeatedly in the Chronicles, kingship is depicted as, as a gift, as a, as a role of service, and not, you know, not a position from which you can just lord it over other people. So, for instance, in Prince Caspian, um, Aslan says to Caspian, do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? 
I don't think I do, sir, said Caspian. I'm only a kid. Good, said Aslan. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been a proof that you were not. So that's one thing. And then in The Horse and His Boy, uh, you remember these two brothers, Cor and Corin, mm. and it's unclear which of them is the elder. Uh, if we're twins, we must be the same age, uh, says Cor. Nay, said the king with a laugh, one must come first. And he looked at the boy and said, um, but, uh, and, and the boy looked at the king and said, but father, couldn't you make whichever you like to be the next king? And the, re the reply he gets is, no, the king's under the law, for it's the law that makes him a king. I have no more power to start away from the crown than any sentry from his post. Oh dear, said Cor, I don't want to be king at all. And then his brother says, hurrah, hurrah, says Corin. I shan't have to be king. I shan't have to be king. I shall always be a prince. It's princes have all the fun. <laughs> and then their father says, and that's truer than thy brother knows, Cor, for this is what it means to be a king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. Um, so there you've got a very clear depiction of, of the burden of kingship. You've got to lead your people, uh, both in good times and in bad. Um, it's not just about, you know, resting on your laurels and, and sucking up all the, the privileges. And, and you get that one more time in um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Interestingly, uh, today is the 70th anniversary of the publication of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It came out on this very day in 1952. Um, and you remember at the end of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Caspian uh, wants to abdicate and he wants to go off into Aslan's country. Uh, but the men on his ship and, and the mouse, Reaper Jeep, uh, force him to come to his senses. And they say that if, if any of them did that, it would be called deserting. Mm. Um, and Reaper Cheap the Mouse says to the king, you are the king of Narnia. You break faith with all your subjects if you do not return to Narnia. You shall not please yourself with adventures as if you were a private person. And if your majesty will not hear reason, it will be the truest loyalty of every man on board to follow me in disarming and binding you till you come to your senses. Um, so in all those depictions, you've got the idea that kingship is... Is a is a role of service, and mm. I mean, I'm, I mean, King Charles has has seen his mother's example for seventy years, um, and he's already shown his own capacity for service as Prince of Wales. Um, remember the the motto of the Princes of Wales is "Ich dien," I serve, and uh, you know, with the Prince's trust and all the all the good charities that Charles has supported. I think he's shown himself to be an excellent um, heir to his mother. And although he's a different personality and a bit less um, placid, we might say, <laughs> he's, he's a more restless character, isn't he, um, than his mother. Nonetheless, I think he's, if you, were, if you were wanting to find someone who could succeed Queen Elizabeth, um, obviously nobody can do it better than the man who's been preparing for it for 70 years. Yeah. Well, and, and perhaps the best advice that we can give King Charles III is to go and read the Narnia Chronicles and, and watch their kingship, the humility and the service, and, and, and give that a go. Mm, absolutely. And 
Lewis's essay, Myth Became Fact, too, that also has something to say. It's not just his essay on equality. Let me just read you um, a few sentences from Myth Became Fact, where Lewis acknowledges that in some ways the, the monarchy is, is a sort of um, a hangover from, a, from an earlier age, and that in some ways it doesn't make obvious sense anymore. Um, because all, all the real powers of the monarch have been stripped away. And, and now the monarch is, is, is a figurehead with very few real powers. The monarch has influence, but not power. The monarch now reigns, but doesn't rule. And, and Lewis acknowledges this and says, it would be much more rational to abolish the English monarchy, but how if by doing so, you leave out the one element in our state which matters most. How if the monarchy is the channel through which all the vital elements of citizenship, loyalty, the consecration of secular life, the hierarchical principle, splendor, ceremony, continuity, still trickle down to irrigate the dust bowl of modern economic statecraft, which is a great phrase. Yeah. Um, and so you can see how, how much Lewis loved the monarchy in principle, even though, of course, he knew that individual kings and individual queens may be better or worse. Now, I don't suppose Lewis had very much time for Edward VIII um, um, or probably Edward VII. Um, but we've been fortunate with our recent monarchs. I mean, George V, George VI and Elizabeth II have all been excellent constitutional monarchs, as was Victoria. Um, George IV was a bit of a rotter, wasn't he? And, <laughs> um, George the, and William IV was a bit dull. Um, but, you know, thank God we're no longer living in the 16th and 17th centuries when monarchs were basically tyrants and despots yeah. or, you know, losing their heads. Yeah, we've come a long way from there, haven't we? Yeah. Well, do you have any further final reflections on C.S. Lewis and monarchy and the queen in particular before hmm. we leave well, you yeah just one last thing um it's it's been remarked that um apparently uh, the queen is is more likely to feature in people's dreams than any other person uh, boris johnson made that speech uh, made that point in his speech to parliament last week and and i remember andrew andrew what's his face the bbc andrew marr making this point in a documentary he made about the queen a few years ago uh, that people dream about the Queen a lot, and I have dreamt about the Queen um, <laughs> on a number of occasions. Um, and interestingly, Lewis dreamt about the Queen. And we know this from a letter he wrote in 1956. I think he was probably nervous about going to the Buckingham Palace garden party, and that's why she featured in his dreams. But <laughs> he says this, I, I dreamed that I was presented to the Queen and found to my horror halfway through the audience that I was wearing my hat. <laughs> At the same moment, a lady in waiting approached me from behind with the speed of a roller skater and snatched the hat off my head with the words, don't be a fool. I left the presence of the Queen pensive, as may be supposed, and on my way through a great gallery, finding without surprise a photograph of myself on an occasional table, I tore it to pieces and went on. Uh, wow. That was his dream about destroying his own image after he made such a faux pas in the presence of Her Majesty. 
Wow. <laughs> what a way what a way to finish well thank you so much michael ward some really interesting accounts of of lewis and what he thought of the queen there um if we want to find out a little bit more about uh, planet narnia wh- where's the best place for us to go uh, there's a website called planetnarnia.com and i have a website michaelward.net uh, those are the best places um and the book is available on Amazon and in from all good booksellers. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Michael Ward, thank you so much. I feel like I want to quote that bit from Prince Caspian again, because that just feels like such a great way to end. The mm. welcome prince said, Aslan, do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? I don't think I do, sir, said Caspian. I am only a kid. Good, said Aslan. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been proof that you were not. Well, I guess that just leaves us to pray for King Charles III, that he will have that sort of humility and just be equipped with everything that he needs in order to do this job. Amen. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. Don't forget that for further reflection on the faith of Queen Elizabeth II and her impact nationally and globally, you can visit the Premier Unbelievable website where there are lots of great articles and podcasts. Visit premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for bonus content, a free ebook and our regular updates. That's premierunbelievable.com. Next week, Justin Briley will be back with Michael Ward who will be answering questions from children about the Narnia Chronicles. You do not want to miss this because we all know that kids ask the best questions. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.